0: The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, "I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me." This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, a quick reminder of why Hebrews was written. Um, you'll remember that there, it was written, the, the recipients of this letter were Jewish converts to Christianity. They were beginning to experience persecution in Rome or outside of Rome. Um, and they were tempted to revert back into their Judaism, to forsake the way of Jesus, revert back into Judaism. Judaism was not being persecuted at the time. Christians were being persecuted at the time. And the author of Hebrews has some questions for them. He is asking throughout the course of this letter in so many ways, why why would you turn away from the one to whom the law points? Why why would you turn from the one who fulfills the law and then place yourself back under the law? Why, Why would you, in your returning to the Old Testament way, why would you Abandon the only way of salvation, the very way anticipated by what you're turning back to. Those are some of the questions that the author of Hebrews is asking, and he's answering them throughout the letter by pointing to the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is the very Son of God. He is the very revelation of the glory of God. He is seated at the right hand of God from where he rules all things in heaven And on earth. And the author of Hebrews here anticipates some questions that his readers might have for him. Okay, if that's true, then why are we being persecuted? Why is a tyrant like Nero on the throne? You say Jesus is king, that he's the ruler of all people, places, and things, but why doesn't it seem to be so? What difference? does it make? And, and we're not unfamiliar uh, to many of those kinds of questions. Many of us would say, Jesus is on the throne. He's my king and he's my God. Then, then why doesn't it seem to be so? What difference does it make? I mean, here I am, mocked at work or rejected by family because I'm a Christian. Or or here I am stuck in a meaningless job that seems to be going nowhere and I can't even make ends meet. Or or here I am without a clue what I'm supposed to do with my life. Or or here I am in a a loveless marriage. Or here I am estranged from my children. Or or here I am with a, a terminal illness. Or here I am addicted to porn. Here we are surrounded by evil and suffering in the world and you say that God is king that Jesus is on the throne, what difference does that make in my life? The author of Hebrews wants us to understand the difference it makes. But he begins here in this passage, not by telling us more of Jesus' story, but by first telling us a little bit of our own. He tells us of the glory with which we were created, humanity, humanity crowned with glory and honor, actually greater than the angels in our standing before the Lord, called and equipped by God to fulfill God's purpose for humanity in the world. He affirms what the readers see, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Mankind has fell from his former glory. We've failed to fulfill our purpose in the world. Humanity and the world with it, all creation groans, groans until the day the glory is restored. And then the author points us to Christ, not so much by emphasizing the exaltation of Christ, which is what he's been doing in chapter one, but here, keying in on the humiliation of Christ. He shows us, Jesus, who set aside his glory by becoming a man to fulfill the story and restore the glory of all who put their trust in him for their salvation. So there's three things we're going to look at as we consider this passage this morning. First, the glory of man. The glory of man. Second, the groaning caused by sin. The groaning caused by sin. And then third, The grace of the true man, Jesus Christ. So the glory, the groaning, and the grace. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that as we look at this passage and and see what you are telling us through the author of this letter, not just a message for those who first received it, but for all who receive it, including us right here, right now. Oh God, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to walk in faith in light of the things that are That are spoken to us here from this your word and we ask this in jesus name amen so first the glory of man and in in verses 6 through 8 the author is actually pulling from psalm 8 psalm 8 is a psalm written by david in which david is giving glory to god for the wonder of his creation in verse 1 of psalm 8 David writes this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in verse 3 of Psalm 8, David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And so in, in Psalm 8, the first part of Psalm 8, you're seeing this just, you know, David is looking around going, this is, God, you are incredible. You are incredible. And then he goes on in verse 4 of Psalm 8 and this is where the author of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews chapter 5 verse I'm sorry chapter 2 verse 6 and says this what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him so David turns from the glory and the majesty of God to the apparent or comparative at least nothingness of man and that's where the author of Hebrews starts, in telling our story. In light of who God is, it seems as though man is nothing. Now, that, that's an important message to remember. So we think about how the world tends to view people in this day and age. If, if there is no God, then people are essentially their own gods. Right? If there is no God, then there's nothing higher than humanity. It's on us to create meaning and purpose, and people are wearing themselves out trying to find it. People are more anxious than ever before. If, if there's no God, then it's on us to find a way to fix everything that's broken, and there is so much broken in the world, and there's so much broken in each and every one of us, and nothing has worked to date. One of the most liberating things a person can do is simply admit they're not God, Right. To, to say, I'm only human. It's a very liberating thing to acknowledge. So, so you have, on the one hand, this picture of, of humanity, of mankind, as comparatively speaking to God as, as nothing, as dust, not God. And yet, on the other hand, we're created by God to reflect his glory and fulfill his purpose in the world. We're created by God, as, as Michael Kruger says, to reflect his glory and rule his world. Th- this is what it means to be human. So in verse 7 of, um, of Hebrews 2, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. There, there it is right there. Crowned with glory and honor, reflecting something of the glory of God, having had everything put in subjection to him, ruling God's world for him. This is the picture of what it means to be created in God's image, created in God's image. In Psalm, I'm sorry, Genesis 126, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness let us make him. To be human is to be created in the very image of God, is to reflect something of his glory in the world, and it's to be given a, a stewardship, a, a a, a rule over the created order, a call to fill the earth and subdue it, to, to take the raw materials of creation and, and, and steward it and, and create culture from it. This is the glory of what it means to be human. And that, that's something that's important for us to remember in our culture as well. Because, on the one hand, our culture would say man is everything, there is no God, man is the highest, and yet, at the other hand, man is nothing. Take a life, doesn't matter. Man's of no value, those people don't matter. We were created by God to reflect something of his glory and to rule his world. Every single person that you meet, Psalm 8's referring to them. That's how God created people. Every single person you meet is finite and yet glorious, fashioned to rule God's world, fashioned to steward God's creation, fashioned to be makers of culture. That has to transform the way we think about our fellow man. It has to. Why protect the sanctity of all life? Why protect the life of the unborn? Why protect the life of the infirm? Why protect the life of the aged? Why identify with the suffering of the world? Why work to alleviate poverty? Why pursue justice for the oppressed? Why do all that we can to promote human flourishing? Why make sure that people are afforded dignity regardless of their station in life? Why Why ensure that people have an opportunity, as best as we're able, for meaningful work? Why ensure, as best as we're able, that people have real agency in the world? Well, yes, because we're commanded to do those kinds of things. And yes, because Jesus died to do those kinds of things for us. But also simply because these are our fellow image bearers. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in The Weight of Glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Such is the glory of man. But let's turn next to the groaning caused by sin. And you see it right there in chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Second line of verse eight, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then here it is, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And you read that passage and you think, well, surely he's talking about Jesus there. But coming out of Psalm eight and what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, yes, but first he's talking about us. We're going to come back to how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. But in doing that, we can't neglect the fact that Psalm 8 is fundamentally about what it means to be human. And so what we don't see now, what leads to groaning in all creation, is the fact that people are not fulfilling their purpose in the world. Genesis told us how we were fashioned in the image of God, but it also tells us how we fell. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam rebelled against God's purpose for him. It was, a, it was a violation. It brought sin and death and misery into the world. It was a, a violation of God's perfect peace, his perfect shalom. Everything was rightly integrated, including our hearts. To be human, to be created by God before the fall, was to have a heart that was wholly set upon God. Sin brought disintegration within our very selves so that we have hearts that are divided, even as Christians, on the one hand, set on God, and on the other, set on other things that we pursue. Sin brought that violation of God's perfect integration of all things within ourselves, but also within people, and and, and with people to God, and also with people to the created order. What was once rightly integrated, God's perfect shalom, is now disintegrated because of sin. And all creation is groaning. It's not just we and our own sin and our own frustration. Things don't go the way that we expect them to. But the author of Romans, Paul, says this in verses 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free Why is the world groaning? It's because of sin. It's because of us. There's a story that's told um, about G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, British author and philosopher, uh, anecdotal story that the Times of London in the early 1900s uh, posed a question to several prominent authors. Here's the question What's wrong with the world today? And they were each invited to write an essay and submit it to the Times for publication. G.K. Chesterton's essay was one sentence long. Chesterton said this Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He understood something of what the Bible would say is the problem at the end of the day it's us, it's sin. We've rebelled against God. The image of God in us is marred. It's still there. The glory of God is veiled in humanity. It's still there just by virtue of being human, and yet it is marred. We've we've rejected the rule of God. We we don't steward his creation. We we don't create culture that's glorifying to him. We're trying to live against the grain of God's design rather than along it and it leads to misery. Who can redeem the mess that we're in? Who will provide a way out? And this is where the author of Hebrews turns to Jesus and the grace of the true man. Jesus became man to make a way for us. This is what the author of Hebrews is wanting to make sure his readers grasp. Jesus isn't just exalted and and glorified and and up there at the right hand of the Father. That's all true. Jesus' message is superior to that of the angels, even as Jesus is superior to the angels. Again, that's chapter 1. That's all true. But the author of Hebrews is saying, right where you are, in the midst of your mess and your pain and your uncertainty, I want you to understand that Jesus came there and then he made a way from there not just to a place where you can have relative peace, but to a place where you can be restored to the glory of what it means to be human. That's the good news that the author of Hebrews is unpacking in this passage. So first, he talks about the, humili- the humiliation of Jesus. Jesus was eternally the son of God. Chapter one, again, we're reminded that Jesus made the angels. They worship him. And yet, we read of Jesus, as Psalm 8 ultimately points to him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus became man. In his incarnation, he took on our flesh. He subjected himself to our frailties. He was made for a time a little lower than the angels. His humiliation extended all the way to the grave. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is speaking to the humiliation of Jesus who tasted death, verse 9 so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The author of Hebrews says something in verse 10 that you might look at and be like, what? how can that be? Verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus, Jesus always has been perfect. The second person of the Trinity God, how could he be made perfect through suffering? And what the author of Hebrews is touching on here, that in a way that I wish I had more time to unpack, that beautifully symbolizes the fulfillment of the high priest sacrifice on the day of atonement, with Jesus ultimately being the great high priest, Hebrews is gonna unpack this a lot throughout the rest of the letter, the great high priest who makes the perfect sacrifice. The one that ends all other sacrifices. Jesus wasn't made perfect in the sense that he was somehow made that which he hasn't already been. Jesus was made perfect in the sense that his sacrifice was recognized as complete, sufficient for the sins of those for whom he died. Therefore, God has exalted him. Verse nine, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. God looked upon the suffering of his son, his death at the cross, and he said, I receive that as the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of my people, and I exalt you to the highest of heavens. What difference does it make? It's beautiful gospel truth. What difference does that make? The key to understanding that is this word founder in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder is probably best translated pioneer or representative. Jesus, as our pioneer, blazed a path for us. He blazed a trail. Jesus blazed the trail of salvation for all who will believe in him. Jesus now is exalted at the right hand of God. He has secured our way to God, and he is ruling even now to ensure that all who have trusted him won't fall away. That all who have looked to him will not fall away. And as our representative, what's true of him is now true of you if your trust is in him for your salvation. This makes a difference in the way in which we deal with our struggles now. Jesus died. His death was tasted. He tasted death for everyone. That means that if you are a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, you too have died. (laughs) Not physically, I know we're still here, but spiritually, to the power of sin, you have died. It is broken over you. The curse of God that you deserve for your sin has been paid by Jesus. The power is broken, the penalty is paid. One day the presence of sin will be gone forever. But you have died with Christ. So when you feel that temptation to go down paths that you know you shouldn't go, whether it's a path of submitting to that temptation to to watch porn or do whatever it is, drink that drink that you shouldn't be drinking, eat that food that you shouldn't be eating, I mean, all these things. Or whether it's that temptation to despair because life isn't going the way you expected, please understand that the power of that temptation over you has been broken. The penalty for the sin that you have committed and will yet commit has been paid. And one day, the the presence of the very sin that you wrestle with now will be forever gone. Because you have been identified with Christ. He is your representative in his death. He's also your representative in his glorification. So Psalm 8, again, talking about man, ultimately talking about Jesus. Jesus as our founder, as our forerunner, as our representative, fulfills Psalm 8. Not in some clinical, detached way, but for those of whom God was speaking through David in Psalm 8. Namely, us. What God created us to be able to do, reflect his glory in some way rule over his creation, stewarding it for God's glory, shaping it and making it, cult making culture from it. All of these are things that are being restored in us. We're not just treading water here on earth. Even now, Jesus, as the glorified Jesus, has ensured that our glory will one day be restored. And as our As the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, verse 11, that process is even happening now. His glory leads to the restoration of our glory. His death is our death. And finally, his sonship means our adoption as sons. In chapter one, the author of Hebrews was emphasizing that as the son of God, Jesus is king. And here in ways that are beautiful and profound, Drawing from Psalm 22, drawing from Isaiah 17 and 18, the author of Hebrews is saying your adoption into the very family of God was something that was anticipated long ago and now is yours through your your identification with Jesus, his representation of you before the Father. We have Jesus as our older brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We're part of God's family now. And that changes the way we think about everything. If we take it to heart, if if we're really paying attention to what the word of God says, then that means because Jesus is our pioneer, Jesus is our forerunner, Jesus has represented us before the Father. This, This high and holy one who is Jesus became man. He died that we might die through faith in him to the power of sin. He lives that we might live as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Making our way not just out of the difficulties we face, but into a greater and greater experience of what it means to be fully human. Until that day when Jesus returns and the whole earth is made new, and we find the fulfillment of Psalm 8 once and for all. Until that day, we do what the author of Hebrews says here, verse 9, but we see him, but we see Jesus. It's going to be a theme that the author comes back to time and again, especially in Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is the calling of what it means to be a Christian Christian. All that God is calling us to do in this world, to reflect more of his glory in the world, to to exhibit his rule over the world, is all a direct result of us fixing our eyes on Jesus, never failing to remember all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in light of that great truth, you will help us to persevere. Lord, you know our frailty, you know our weakness. You know our need better than we know it ourselves. And so we come to you as as the the finite and fallen people that we are, and we pray that you would give us a a greater vision of what it means to be human, Lord, that we would take to heart what you created us for, to be your image bearers, reflecting some of your glory in the world and, and living for your purpose. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to acknowledge how far we have fallen short of that. Though we make the measure of our falling short simply doing things that we know we ought not to do. And yet your purpose for us is so much greater and we've fallen so far short of that. And yet you, Lord Jesus, became man. You made a way. You've opened a way. You've cut a course for us. You've made a path. You are there at the right hand of the Father ensuring that we will make it home, interceding for us, and by your spirit you are with us even now. Lord, the news, in fact, is so good, no matter what we read or see around us. In light of that truth, oh God, would you help us to live even now as the people that you have created us to be, offering hope, speaking words of truth, seeking to bring reconciliation in a world that will one day be reconciled. Lord, would you help us to live as the people that we are in this day and age for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.